Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week we take a broader perspective on the AI Act with one of the leading experts that advise the EU institutions from the start. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website uractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today, I'm joined by Luciano Floridi, leading expert in AI ethics and founding director of Yale's uh, Digital Ethics Center. Hi, Luciano. Thank you very much for your kind invitation. Uh, happy to be with you today. So, Luciano, you have been a keen advisor to the EU institutions on AI-related matters since the very early days of the white paper and the high-level expert group. Uh, how would you say the discussion on this topic has evolved since then? Yes, no, you're right. And uh, uh, with a little bit of a joke, uh, I could say my name is Luciano Freudi and I have contributed to the AI Act. <laughs> <laughs> sort of uh, confessing as a sinner. Um, I think there has been... Uh, uh, robust, as they say in British English, uh, discussion, meaning you know, sometimes um, a lot of uh, controversial points have been made um, up to the very last stage. Uh, I believe that that is a good democratic way of pro progressing, uh, especially when uh, we have the good news at the end, uh, where the discussion doesn't lead to a, a stalemate and uh, doesn't block the the uh, final result, but improves it. Um, it seems to me that uh, some compromises are good compromises. That's what good politics uh, achieves. So on the whole, uh, we have a good piece of legislation. I agree with anyone who is willing to uh, find room for improvements, of course. Um, but on the whole, uh, I think there has been a, a, a remarkable journey. And uh, if I may just add an extra point here, um, we should really appreciate how the European Union, Brussels, uh, to put it simply, can think in long terms. No other place which is equally democratic and liberal can put projects on such a long term in terms of development and reach the sort of conclusion that uh, uh, Europe uh, managed to, to achieve. So we should be we should be sort of uh, pleased with the outcome. Yeah, this uh, really reminds me of the fact that when it was first proposed, the AI Act in 2021, uh, the whole industry was on edge saying uh, this uh, technology is not mature yet and so on. And then when uh, ChatGPT was publicly launched, uh, everyone was saying, oh, you're moving too slowly, it's too late now. So <laughs> it's, really, it's really, yeah, people always find... Uh, uh, an angle to criticize, right? Indeed. Um, but so you were mentioning uh, the fact that uh, EU policymakers have uh, painfully reached an agreement in December. Uh, we have seen a leaked draft uh, earlier this week. Uh, so what is your assessment on, on this political deal and what you have seen so far? Of course, it will take time to do a full legal analysis, but what's your uh, hot take on this? I think on the whole, we have managed to square a few uh, concerns, um, especially how far um, the control on uh, biometrics um, is going to be. Um, this leaves room for 
further adjustments. Um, we should keep in mind that a lot of this will be uh, further clarified and determined uh, in terms of what we can call uh, briefly application. Uh, so the law uh, will have to be interpreted, uh, will have to be applied. And uh, uh, I can already see uh, you know, a year from now, maybe, uh, further discussions and in the future, uh, let's, let's make it five years from now. So we will be able to see it, hopefully. Uh, the European Court of Justice uh, uh, having to deal with uh, difficult cases where interpretations and, and applications come to some sort of contrast. Having said that, um, it is the in the uh, sort of more pragmatic side that we will find uh, extra room for improvements. Uh, one small point, just to be a little bit more concrete uh, for anyone who's listening. Uh, if you look at the uh, evolution of the what the document means by AI, which is a, a remarkable piece of evidence, uh, you will see that, uh, unfortunately, we have moved away from the original formulation, which I think is still the, the best uh, of all of them, and reach a rather confusing, even scientifically and technically confusing uh, description of what the AI Act is about, uh, normally what the law means by uh, uh, AI. And that uh, sort of particular point will in my view, lead to um, litigations. Um, at the moment, for example, the word inference occurs in the quote-unquote definition of AI. Now, uh, this, especially the, the, the generative AI, uh, the new large language models and so forth, they do not, strictly speaking, infer um, from the input. They're trained, their correlations, their statistical uh, relevant uh, patterns, etc. But if you want to be very strict on, as the law should be, <laughs> on the word infer, well, then you are restricting uh, remarkably the scope of the law. Now, I'm sure that this is not in the mind of the legislators. I wish they had been more careful on the technical and scientific side, but uh, we shall see in the future how that can be rectified. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you're not the first one raising this point. Um, we shall see how the article interacts with the recitals uh, for, a, for a full uh, legal analysis of that. Um, uh, but since you mentioned the definition, because this uh, part, were, there was a strong push to align it uh, with, with international partners. So the idea here was to take the definition from the OECD. Uh, there is this uh, AI roadmap uh, uh, as part of the EU-US uh, Trade and Technology Council uh, to align on these key terms. Uh, since you are sitting on the other side of the pond in, in Yale, do you think that uh, there has been progress uh, to form a sort of uh, EU-US consensus around what AI is, uh, what are the common risks? and, and uh, some sort of uh, uh, trustworthiness approach to it? Well, at the risk of being uh, slightly uh, critical, uh, I wish uh, the EU had not aligned itself with the uh, OECD, but had aligned itself with the US and ISO. I mean, we do have an international you know, standard organization that is full of <laughs> experts who can talk about the topic uh, with a level of competence that uh, we, we need. Um, now, if you look at the US and the ISO side, uh, their uh, sort of, uh, description of what the law should be about, in other words, let's call it the definition of AI, is 
slightly but significantly different. Uh, there is no infer. Uh, uh, there is much more uh, a focus on the uh, actual technology and actual science. Uh, I don't know why um, the, uh, the EU decided to align itself with the OECD, which actually was also originally, if you look at the original documents of the OECD, aligned with the US and the ISA. Uh, and I think it's been an, an interplay between the EU and the OECD, which led to this sort of uh, patchy uh, understanding of AI. Uh, at some point, for example, if you look at the different uh, uh, versions, content is included, then is excluded, then is included again. Now we find it included. That's a good. Uh, that's good news. Uh, the uh, sort of US in the executive uh, order does not cover content, at least in the definition, which is remarkable. But having said that, of course, the uh, President Biden had in mind more uh, security, um, industry, uh, uh, value adding sort of strategies, and the whole, let's call it social media and uh, fake news sort of area, or the copyright and Hollywood strikes, etc., was not uh, under the radar. So now, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll find that all these definitions and sort of different strategies and perspectives will come to some sort of a pragmatic resolution when we need to decide about actual cases. But I would like to see, uh, you know, in the near future, uh, decisions taken by the, um, the judges, by right, the courts, uh, because they will have to be the ones who resolve the ambiguity and the lack of. Uh, I would say scientific uh, precision in what we're discussing. Now, sometimes um, people uh, accuse politicians of not knowing what they're talking about. Some other times uh, it is necessary to leave some ambiguity uh, in the wording or law because that leaves room for further negotiation and refinement. Now, one way or the other, uh, there is room for interpretation. And um, hopefully uh, the European way of interpreting what we are discussing and therefore, for example, including or not including some specific technologies and how risky they are and so on, uh, will be reasonable. Um, I'm afraid, uh, if I can put a, a final pinch of uh, concern, that we'll see more fights in the future. Uh, but um, these are further ahead and will be down the road in terms of new chapters of European digital architecture when it comes to regulation. So let's take this uh, win uh, and be concerned about the next sort of bridge to cross uh, when we get there. Right. It, it's interesting what you're saying because in a in a previous iteration of the of the definition in the European Parliament, there was alignment with the US NIST definition uh, and then moved away to the OECD. But um, let's move on because uh, one of the most uh, politically contentious points uh, was a um, late stage uh, push from France, Germany and Italy to have a more uh, uh, light touch regime for uh, foundation models. Uh, so here the argument was that uh, uh, Europe uh, could uh, still compete uh, in this area and create its own large language models and that the best way to shape technology is to develop it rather than regulate it. What do you make of this argument? Well, I'm afraid I, I, I disagree with the argument. Um, not because it's uh, wrong, but 
let me put it this way, because it's not right enough. Uh, it's not entirely wrong. I mean, of course, uh, innovation uh, develops uh, sometimes in, in an empty space. It's easier if there are no uh, constraints, uh, uh, frameworks. But let's consider two points, which, if you like, are yes, but there is more to be said. Uh, first, um, innovation is not always good. I think we should stop thinking that just because it's innovation, then it's a holy cow, untouchable, and, and therefore any innovation is, is fantastic. Normally, uh, during my lectures, I provide the example of a fantastic innovation that was uh, cherished as a turning point in you know, the way in which human beings would sort of move around. Um, it was a very successful company. It uh, enabled tens of thousands of people to, uh, if I correct, or at least 10,000 or more, thousands certainly, of people to uh, visit places that had never done before, etc. The Empire State Building was shaped in order to anchor a Zeppelin. Now, if you look at the discussion at the time, do not regulate the Zeppelin because it's innovation. Uh, no, have the Zeppelin first and then see what happens. Well, we know what happened. So I'm not saying that AI is the Zeppelin. It is not. But uh, it's just a good reminder that sometimes innovations are not a good idea. So the second point is we should also abandon uh, the dogma, the unjustified view that innovation and regulation are enemies. It is almost the opposite. Good innovation happens on a clear, certain background of rules. It's a bit like playing. You know, would you like to play a game where there are no rules and anyone can do anything? Or would you like to have, first of all, as we used to do when we were kids, say, no, 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 this is a new game, let's set the rules. And then, oh, but it's cheating, that's not right, no, sorry. Well, who would, you know, as kids say, oh, you know what, let's play first and then we establish the rules later. Well, of course, that's the initial stage. You start kicking the can around and then all of a sudden you say, look, no, that's not right, that's not good. No, you can't touch it with your hand. And all of a sudden you're playing some kind of football. So um, back to us, uh, innovation, uh, can be risky and sometimes deadly wrong. How do you know that? Well, a bit of regulation would help. Secondly, regulation is a force for good if done properly. And that's the, the real key. Are we establishing a good, fair uh, playground for anyone to compete? I think so. So why Italy, France, Germany were so concerned? Well, uh, because they look at the first step. Well, what if we want to innovate and the regulations are going to stifle innovation? Well, certainly it's a good kind of uh, technology. So we want to have uh, an AI industry in Europe. Absolutely. But how do we do it the European way? Well, we do it by having a good framework that will enable more competition, fair allocation resources. They, uh, no, we will be able to attract more um, people from uh, other places. We'll be able to establish courses, etc. All that requires agreement having everybody on the same page, around the same table, etc. With all the metaphors out of the way, uh, the point becomes, is this regulation going to help? I think so. Of course, it helps the European way. Now, other countries have other traditions. For example, no, if you privilege, and sorry for the long uh, answer, but if you privilege in the United States, for example, competition as the mechanism uh, that really uh, enables you to put the market in the right shape, as opposed to human rights and human dignity, well, surely you go in, in a certain kind of direction rather than another. 
but we are in Europe. Now, we do not think that the market uh, and competition is the sort of yardstick to measure any possible progress. And I'm not saying this is better or worse. I'm just saying it's a different kind of tradition. In this tradition, that's the way we do it. So uh, to conclude, uh, have we done it in the, the European way? We did. Were the three countries uh, wrong in being concerned? I don't think so. But have we addressed that concern in a way that is more fruitful? Yes. So I'm glad that we moved ahead and resolved that initial concern in a good European way. And I mean, uh, this is basically the underlying assumption of the AI Act and EU digital policy in general. The EU is basically saying we want to use this technology, but at our conditions and, and not at all costs. Um, Moving on, uh, now I, I, I wanted to go back to what you said before, that probably in five years' time we will still have core cases defining key concepts uh, related to the AI Act. So, of course, uh, there will be high expectations uh, in terms of what this uh, law will bring, uh, pretty much like the GDPR. Um, but what are the main challenges that you see for the European Commission and, and national regulators in enforcing these new rules? And, and what, they are, what are the pitfalls that they should avoid? I think one of the main concerns uh, shared by lots of people is um, um, one of, of a pragmatic nature. Uh, you rightly use the word enforcement. And I think that that is the problem. Uh, or rather the difficulty. Um, uh, we're going to see an enormous pressure on uh, national institutions, um, um, organisms, etc., to um, organizations or apologies, uh, uh, to tackle complex and expensive processes of uh, enforcement. Do we have the resources uh, there? If you look at the GDPR uh, and the, the data protection, one of the things that we see is that uh, despite a robust and pretty much good legislation, which has been so uh, used as a template by many other uh, countries around the world, the classic Brussels effect, it is very difficult for the uh, data authorities in, in each country to pursue, uh, implement, enforce the GDPR. Now, we are asking uh, perhaps the same authorities, perhaps new authorities, and we shall see, uh, that's another uh, interesting uh, question to resolve, to uh, implement also the AI Act. Uh, are we going to give them the right amount of resources when the other side has an enormous amount of resources to sometimes simply ignore the law uh, or decide that, well, uh, it was a fee worth paying? Uh, let me put it this way so that uh, it'll be more sort of uh, metaphorically. It, it's like having good parking rules, but no one checking whether people are parking in the right place. Well, the rules are there, but if you don't have enough people checking, or if people don't care because, you know, the fee for, the, uh, for parking in the wrong place, well, I'm, I'm a very rich uh, driver. I can afford to pay that fee every day uh, throughout the year. I don't care. If you catch me, I pay and I keep going. That seems to me one of the major difficulties we're going to face. And we've seen this before. So um, are we going to put the resources or where the, uh, the need is um, to make sure that this all this regulation, uh, the GDPR, the, but also you know, all the digital markets, uh, the digital services and so on, basically the whole uh, digital legal architecture of Europe uh, needs to uh, 
hit the ground? I don't know. Uh, and that will also depend on, on different states and how deep the pockets of the companies uh, interacting with Europe are. Now, there is, a, uh, if, if I may add a final point, there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel or there is a there's silver lining. Sometimes it's just not worth the effort for companies to uh, uh, be um, non-compliant. Sometimes it's just easier to, to say, okay, well, that, those are the new, new rules of the game. Uh, let me play according to the rules. Um, I am uh, slightly more reliant on that. Uh, in other words, the companies will simply uh, understand that this is the environment in which they are operating and they should uh, abide uh, by the law rather than expecting uh every single authority to have all the resources and the technical expertise and the time to uh, look at compliance at every single step. Uh, that seems to be a task that is gigantic. So hopefully um, it will not be required because on the other side, companies will simply follow the rule. Right. And just to expand the um, GDPR parallel a bit further, um, the AI Act has often been uh, vented from the Commission as possibly setting up the global benchmark for rules on artificial intelligence. Do you think that uh, this law has actually the potential to become the, the international standards on AI? And if so, under which uh, conditions can it successfully do so? I think we need a, a, a distinction which I hope is not too subtle. Um, we have been talking now for some time uh, of Brussels effect, not typical. So uh, Brussels provides some regulation and the rest of the world, uh, especially also companies all over the world, uh, have to comply. Once they comply, they simply comply everywhere else. So they don't go back to their own way of doing things differently. Now, the Brussels effect is robust uh, when the physical analogical world uh, is concerned. Consider the, the, the car industry. Okay, I'm not going to build my cars differently if I had to comply with European legislation, say, in terms of um, uh, emissions. Um, I'm going to have that kind of engine everywhere else. I mean, it would be too costly uh, to have a particular sort of car for the uh, European market and a car that is less, uh, if you like, uh, uh, less good or, or less environmentally, for example, friendly in other contexts. It, it just doesn't make sense. So once I have to jump... Uh, once the bar is set up by Brussels, well, that's it. That is true when it's very costly uh, to have different models, for example, of a car. In other contexts, when the digital is in, is in question, you know, we're talking about very malleable, uh, agile services, say AI as a service. And people uh, who listen to us, they know, but some people outside, they think in terms of AI as if you were robotics, but it isn't. I mean, it's a, most of AI is actually software, uh, services online, etc., cloud computing. So, well, these are, are easily, easily uh, adaptable. So let me give you an example of where the, mm, uh, so the Russell effect didn't quite work. Uh, the right to be forgotten. Um, uh, we have uh, search engines complying with, in compliance with uh, European legislation in Europe through a variety of measures. Um, but then they do whatever they, they like in other context where there is no European legislation. So if you operate within Europe, right, people got them to be applied. If you are, say, in the United States and you are a, a large, important uh, search engine, you can do whatever you want. So where is the Brussels effect then? 
Well, uh, here is therefore the distinction. Now, your question therefore requires uh, a distinction between uh, Brussels effect and influencing as first template of something is out there. So if I'm a country uh, outside Europe and I want to look around and I'm a good student, well, I'm gonna learn from someone who has already done the homework and say, oh, look, I am country X and country X wants to have some legislation about AI. Let's look what uh, Europeans have done. But we should not confuse that with the Brussels effect. It's more like, okay, we can um, uh, use uh, the AI Act as a template, but then adapt, adopt, change, modify. The, the Brussels effect in terms of companies complying, not complying with the AI Act will comply with the AI Act everywhere else, everywhere else in the world. I'm not so sure. Uh, that is a little bit more subtle. Maybe, maybe not, but the digital uh, enables so much more flexibility than the analog, uh, so the virtual, the physical, etc., that I would expect a little bit more of the right to be forgotten approach rather than the car industry approach. Right. Um, just maybe a couple of things that make me think there might not be a dual product approach, as you were mentioning. For example, if you train a model... Um, uh, following the AI Act, would it actually be more convenient to tra train another model not following the rules? Or if you set up a risk management system in Europe, would it not make sense to extend it to the rest of the world? You know, just just a couple of elements there that make me think what, what could happen perhaps uh, is um, that it's so, the compliance costs are so high that companies decide to launch their product uh, somewhere else first and then uh, uh, raise enough money to launch it in Europe uh, to, to face compliance. I don't know, just a couple of ideas. Let's start from the last point that you raised, which I think is very important. Um, uh, for a number of years in the medical sector, we've already seen that uh, companies um, that uh, are going abroad, they uh, do all the training on uh, data that uh, are personal data uh, in countries where either there is no law or the law is not implemented in force properly. Uh, they produce their own, say, maybe an app, uh, a medical app, and then they come back and they sell the app um, and uh, uh, bypassing, uh, say, local legislation in Europe uh, or, say, in the UK. Well, this is exactly what we would like not to see, but it is a plausible scenario. And that's what I'm talking about uh, when I say, well, let's not rely uh, too much on the buses effect. The bus effect could generate exactly this kind of problems, like uh, external training in uh, on on data that uh, and in ways that we would not accept uh, in Europe. But then we import the sort of uh, outcome of that. One way of blocking that would be to be more serious about the whole uh, chain uh, that is behind a particular product and ask, uh, as we you know, should uh, per AI Act in no, interpreting the AI Act in, in a way I'm just suggesting, to be shown exactly where that app has been uh, produced, how, uh, according to what data, et cetera, and then have some kind of, uh, sort of uh, recognition that if it is not uh, uh, compliant with European values, well, that app uh, doesn't reach the market here, not like here as in Europe. 
I'm not so sure there's, we're going to see this, but that would be the coherent way of applying the AI Act. Um, the other problem is when, uh, uh, sorry, the first point that you mentioned was like, well, are they really going to, uh, companies do different kind of trainings depending on whether they sell the product, uh, say in this particular case, sort of large language models or any other generative AI, but depending on whether they sell it to uh, or make it available to European market, US market, et cetera. Um, I think there are, there's quite a lot of room there for uh, diversity in terms of cost. Um, so uh, I can imagine a company doing uh, the extra more for the European uh, market, but not bothering to then do the extra more for the US market. Um, that diversification, um, the, uh, the ability of providing different products or services, um, it's in the digital sort of nature of things would be inconceivable or almost inconceivable in, in the car industry uh, where it would be too costly. Uh, but if the AI Act forces, for example, a company that um, all of a sudden finds itself on the list of risky uh, sort of com uh, products or services, being forced to add, say, extra layers, for example, for uh, compliance, uh, acknowledgement, age use, uh, impact, etc. Well, it doesn't mean that therefore they will do that everywhere else in the world. They will do it for the European market. Uh, that's fine. Uh, but then again, we start looking at uh, different services for different markets rather than, oh, look, now there's the AI Act. Everyone is going to be you know, um, in trying to comply with the, the AI Act. Therefore, we'll find the same services all over the place. I think that that is an assumption that is not granted. Right. And just to conclude, because we are uh, running out of time, um, what do you see in terms of upcoming trends and technological developments uh, in the AI industry that will be the most consequential in the coming years and that could make uh, the AI Act uh, outdated? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, point. Uh, I think the AI Act will need a little bit of, like the GDPR will need uh, to keep an eye on on, on new uh, developments, inevitably, uh, the technology does uh, move. Uh, it seems to me that there are a couple of directions where this uh, becoming obsolete could uh, uh, hit the news. Um, one is in the uh, in the combination of uh, different kinds of digital uh, products and services. Um, we can imagine now, uh, but nothing not too sci-fi. I mean, we might, I hope to be able to see it in the next few years, um, a combination between artificial intelligence and uh, biotechnologies. That is not really within the AI Act so scope at the moment, uh, but any biocomputation where uh, all of a sudden uh, we realize that, say, all the engineering work we've done on DNA and new forms of life starts getting mix and match with uh, the engineering that goes on into, in, the, in, sorry, in the generative AI. Well, that seems to me uh, a classic case where the AI Act uh, would need to be updated uh, as any good piece of legislation. So that is the uh, one direction where artificial intelligence combines with other fields. Um, the other one is uh, where uh, actually there's, there, there will be, or there might be um, a transformation uh, within the digital where AI uh, combines with uh, internally with other digital uh, products and services. At the moment, um, with, uh, especially uh, when this happens in, in, in 
deep dive silos, say defense, which of course the AI Act has only barely touched for good reasons. I mean, um, it's not within the scope, uh, strictly speaking. Um, but also, say, the pharmaceutical uh, health um, or uh, areas of uh, political and social interest, uh, insurance, etc. If we going down the road uh, deeply enough, we will find innovation that the AI Act will have to take into account. So, quick answer, either where AI will interact with other sectors or where AI will have been developed vertically within the digital realm to uh, produce new services and so on. At that point, the AI Act may need uh, an AI Act 2.0, um, a little bit like the GDPR, which, uh, you know, if rumors are in Brussels are correct, and you know better than I do, uh, no, it, people are considering uh, whether it is still up to the task or needs to be um, to, uh, revised and improved. I mean, good legislation should be open to uh, new uh, input. Uh, I hope so. Right. Um, another possibility, since this, this is horizontal legislation, uh, would be that the EU comes up with sectorial uh, laws. I know, for instance, uh, uh, DG Employment is considering one on AI in the workplace. Um, but just to follow up on what you said, I mean, indeed, uh, this is a fast-paced technology and uh, the the Commission and national authorities will have to keep in touch with the scientific community. And precisely for that, uh, they've introduced this uh, idea of a scientific panel of independent experts. So I hope, Luciano, we'll see you among them. <laughs> it will be a privilege. Uh, what I hope is that that panel will be taken seriously. Uh, whoever is there, please make sure that you put uh, uh, people who know what they're talking about. Exactly. Well, uh, thank you once again, Luciano Floridi, leading expert in AI ethics and founding director of Yale's Digital Ethics Center. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Avi Chiori. I'm Yoruga Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. <laughs>